in the grand tradition of our blockbuster events, Crisis Till Death and Death Till Wedding, the podcast returns to the Triangle Era for the infamous Electric Superman saga, Grant Morrison's legendary JLA, and Superman's TV depictions on the animated series and Lois and Clark. This is Electric Till One Million, a new eight-part epic covering 1997 through 1999. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Electric to One Million, Part 6, and joining me to discuss the DC One Million event is renowned Superman fan and podcaster, Michael Bailey. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's very nice uh, finally getting to talk to you and not just hear this introduction and listen to the rest of the episode. Yes, this is the first time that you and I are actually speaking. We've connected via social media, which has been terrific. And I did want to take this opportunity sincerely to thank you for all of your kind words and your support of this podcast. You know, you've been at this for a long time. I think anyone who's been in the Superman fandom and listening to Superman podcasts is, is probably well familiar with who you are. And so to have you be as generous and gracious as you have been uh, really means a lot. And I really appreciate it. So I just wanted to publicly, officially thank you for all of your support. No, it's my pleasure. I'm a, I'm a big believer in supporting the other, uh, supporting other Superman shows, uh, podcasters in general. Uh, that's been my kind of what I've done since I started podcasting. And back in, <clears throat> excuse me, back in 2010, a bunch of us for a very, for about two or three years had a Superman podcast network where we all kind of pulled our, we had like a central location where they could post shows. We all had our own feeds and stuff, but, uh, and that broke up as internet things are bound to do. But, uh, when I was, uh, realizing that I didn't know who the new player or the newer players, cause you've been at this for a while, uh, I started poking around and your show came up as a recommendation and I'm glad I found it. That's awesome. I'm I'm so glad that you found it. And as as far as your podcasting efforts, people might know you from uh, your Superman shows from Crisis to Crisis, or it all comes mm -hmm. back to Superman. I know you have other shows as well. And I know that you're, you know, we have different approaches, not just you and me, but but all of the Superman podcasts out there. I know in terms of how you're going through the material, right? You're going at a much slower, more methodical pace than these huge chunks uh, that we cover on here. But that's the thing. I think the material lends itself to different different types of coverage and it's all good. Yeah, well, back when we started from Crisis to Crisis in 2009, uh, one, it was supposed to be a five-year journey. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, just real life kept getting in the way. There were times where I couldn't uh, record. There were times where Jeff couldn't record. Uh, and when we got to where there was four titles a month, uh, we could not do all of that in one episode that it was breaking me as an editor. <laughs> it was seriously like these things were like four or five hours long. And I'm like, so uh, yeah, but it, indexing shows used to be more popular. I will never do another one. <laughs> if I ever cover anything with Superman again, it will be very similar to what you're doing. I'll do large chunks at a time uh, because it's fun. I'm dedicated. Uh, there are people that like, you know, the granular look, but uh, man, it's work. <laughs> For sure. I, I admire, I admire the patience and the restraint. I think that it takes, I think that's probably other than the fact that, that you and others out there are, are already sort of covering that ground the way that you are. I think for me, the other thing too, is just that I, 
I'm I'm too excited to get through everything that I want to cover. And I think to go to go at that pace, it, just for me, I think it would test my patience too much. So for you and other shows that are able to do that, I really I really do admire that. Yeah, it, it's um, it's fun mainly because I think what we're doing and the people that seem to like the show are. I mean, when it launched, we were very fortunate to have the Superman homepages support. Uh, I've been working on with the Superman homepage since 2001. So uh, we've uh, I've had a long history with Steve. And he posted us when we first started, which gave us a bigger platform than I, than I had previously had. Uh, and what I found is there are a lot of post-crisis Superman fans out there. They're very opinionated. And they like the fact the the initial audience and and even the people that have picked us up now because so I, I get an email every once in a while like I just started listening to the show and I'm like you poor bastard <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot to go through just skip to the death that's what a lot of people do um, but there are people that like going through the issues because they remember reading them as they were growing up so uh, you know it, it works on a number of levels I th I think what I like about what you do. Um, is you're able to take more of a thousand foot approach. Like you get into specifics, but you're able to look at kind of the themes and what the writers and artists and all them were, were doing on a whole, whereas we're kind of doing it, like figuring it out later, essentially. I, I recently just listened to your Exile uh, episode. Um, and the way you covered it, I really liked because I think you covered the major beats of the story and gave it its due and then followed by talking about everything up to day of the Krypton man. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I really respect what you do too. We're going to wax each other's cars at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll, we'll dive into DC 1 million, but I will just echo what you said that there are a lot of post-crisis Superman fans out there, because I see it. As you know, I do these triangle era events each year, and and we always have some sort of death of Superman coverage as well. And those episodes do tend to pop a little bit more. When I look at the statistics, it's like, okay, like people, people definitely are, you know, definitely have an interest in this era as, you know, an interest we share, of course. But uh, yeah, it's nice to know that people are out there and, and looking for this kind of content. Mm-hmm. So whenever I have a first-time guest on the show, I do like to start with the question about their Superman fan journey. Now, this could be its own episode, so I'll just ask you, I suppose, for, for kind of the broad strokes, the major tent poles of your Superman fandom. What got you in and what's kept you here and has anything lost you and gotten you back? What are some of the, the sort of the, the big picture uh, aspects of your Superman fan journey? Yeah, I, I, I was because I've listened to the show, I was expecting this. And I'm like, I, I'm not going to sit here and go into the, like the specifics. Um, in a broad sense, uh, Superman's been part of my life since as far as I can remember. I was born in 1976. So that was two years before Superman, the movie. Uh, so the Christopher Reeve films and the super friends were my first introduction to the character. Uh, and I loved them, but my deep, dark secret is that I was a Batman fan at first. Loved the Adam West TV show. Uh, when I got my superpowers toys, Christmas 85, I was most excited to get the Batmobile. Uh, but in 1987, I, um, my, I have three older sisters and we all had various degrees of jacked up grills. Uh, 
and it was a sliding scale with my eldest sister being okay, but me having like this giant overbite. So we were all going into orthodontics and the orthodontist we went to uh, because I couldn't stay at home alone uh, being so young, my mom would take me and Dr. Ty's waiting room was lousy with comic books. Uh, like, like he subscribed to Superman, the Superman titles and the Batman titles. And there was this one issue that caught my eye that it was just like, what's going on here? It's an imaginary story, but Pete Ross is dead. And like all of the villains are coming out of the woodwork. What? Okay. I don't want to read this. And then I picked up another one, which had Superman and Superboy fighting. And then we had to go because it was time to leave. And I don't know how long later. Um, I wasn't writing this down, but I found that issue and another issue uh, of Superman. And I opened the Superman issue and there's Lana Lang sitting on a fence post. There's Clark Kent, not Superman, Clark Kent in glasses, ripping a tree out of the ground. And I'm like, what's going on here? That's Lana. She's not supposed to know he's Superman. And then two pages later, the Kent show up. I'm like, okay, I got to get this. And with Superman number eight and action 591 was my launch point. And it was about a year later with the lead up to exile that it went from being, I'm just going to get these to, I need to get these and it's non-negotiable. And I really, that launched me into being a Superman fan more, uh, more than anything. And as I grew up, I got more into watching all the different TV shows and movies and as an adult discovering the radio show, thanks to archive.org. Um, there were two periods where I didn't read the Superman books. Um, right around 2010, I dropped out because I was just done. And then I came back because Action Comics number 900 was coming up and... <laughs> I joke, if you've ever seen the movie Outsiders, there's a moment where Matt Dillon's character says there isn't going to be a rumble without him. There isn't going to be an anniversary issue of Action Comics without me. And I'm like, great, I'm back. What do we got? The New 52. Uh, <laughs> launched the very same year. Uh, and then when Bendis revealed the identity, I dropped out for about three years. Um, that's not what I wanted in Superman. And I knew where the door was. But now with... Uh, everything going on right now, I'm back. Uh, I'm reading all the books and it's, it's weird because it isn't my Superman, but it's a Superman I enjoy reading. Um, I, I've, I've really become an omnivore when it comes to the character. Uh, no matter the era or anything, I try to find something to like and it's just kind of, they're telling stories right now that appeal to my sensibilities as a Superman fan. So it's great to hear all of that. And I, it's fair to say we're similarly aligned on, on a lot of what you just laid out. And I, I really identify with this notion of, you know, sort of who, who my Superman is. And for me, it is this mm -hmm. triangle era Superman that's home base for me. And that's sort of always the, the standard or the default, but I can appreciate other incarnations and even more so now having done this podcast and uh, reading and learning and exploring and filling in gaps and kind of getting a, a sense of the bigger picture. And I, I'm with you. I think what's going on right now, I think the stories are stronger than they've been in a while. And while it still might not be our Superman per se, it's it's pretty damn close. I, I, I really feel, yeah. I do feel very much at home in, in these current stories that are going on right now. So it's a good, it's a good time for sure. 
Yeah, Rebirth was like the breath of fresh air I needed after the new 52. Um, I have a friend, you you had him on um recent episode of The Adventures Continue, John Wilson, uh, total diehard New 52 fan. Um, and uh, I love John. We've been friends for years. And uh, I, I just kind of kept my head down through the New 52, tried to enjoy what I could. But by the end, I was just like, man, this is just not working. And then Rebirth happened. And it was like this breath of fresh air. And it's, it's, it's like every once in a while they decide why don't we just tell Superman stories? You know, why don't we, what, let's not try to reformat the hard drive, reconfigure the character, try to make him relatable to a new younger audience. Why don't we just tell Superman stories and see where that gets us? Yes. Yeah. Right. Amazing. <laughs> Real quick, just going back to your, your experience at the orthodontist's office. Uh, did, did you or, or your siblings have a palate expander by any chance? No, uh, we were, I guess, fortunate with that. We all went through braces, headgear, um, you know, retainers, the whole nine yards. So all right. I can't complain too much, but I did have a palate expander along with braces and uh, not fun. Glued to the roof of your mouth, <laughs> brackets on the teeth. My mother had to take the little key and, and uh, rotate <laughs> it periodically to stretch the mouth. Oh, terrible memory. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen kids with braces today. and You can't even tell. And I'm like, I had to bring a toothbrush to school with me because I had to brush my teeth after after lunch because otherwise it's just full of food. <laughs> so, yes. All right. So, and I, no, and, go ahead. I, and I may have stolen the um, issue where he revealed his identity to Lois, Action Six Sixty Two from the office because I couldn't find it. Um, that may have happened. I think the statue of limitations has run out on that though. <laughs> I, I think you'll be all right, man. If there's one to steal, though, that's that's a good one. That was a good. <laughs> That was a good pick. So DC 1 million, mm -hmm. a lot to unpack here. I want to actually start with a, a follow-up to a couple of our earlier episodes, because in the course of this event, I've been talking a lot about a specific issue of Wizard Magazine, number 86, cover dated October 1998. This was my first issue. I'll hold it up for people watching on YouTube. Uh, the first issue of, of Wizard uh, that I ever owned, uh, I had the Hulk cover. Uh, but I recently was able to track down a copy of the Daredevil cover at my local comic shop, Oh Yeah Comics in Harrison, New York, one of our sponsors, great store. And this is the issue with that article I've been referencing, Clark Kent, all about everything that was wrong with the Superman books at the time, according to the wizard staff. So later in this episode, I, I want to toss a few of those at you and, and get your take. But I just, I just wanted to update the audience that I was able to track this down. I'm very happy about this. But what I'll re mention right now is there is an ad for DC 1 million. So again, the timing of this lines up perfectly. So we have an ad here mm -hmm. and it says the revelation of a utopian future, a promise of heroism untainted by time, a dark alliance determined to lay waste to it all comics. You never thought you'd live to see a month long event featuring a four issue miniseries by Grant Morrison, Val Samik's apprentice Rollins on sale in September. DC 1 million. So September 1998, we had the core four-issue miniseries spinning out of Grant Morrison's legendary JLA run. And then we also had every DC comic published that month displaying a, a 1 million issue tying in with varying levels of, of uh, you know, depth and specificity to the, to the overall storyline. Now, I have to issue a correction. And you might have caught this uh, in, in, in earlier episodes. <laughs> For some reason, I conflated 
and I've been doing this for the length of this podcast and even before this podcast for years now, I have been conflating this type of crossover, which also includes things like Zero Hour, Final Night, Genesis, right? Where we have a core weekly four or five issue miniseries and then every book that month tying into it. I've been conflating that kind of miniseries with a fifth week event. And as I was rereading One Million today, <laughs> for whatever reason, it dawned on me. I was like, oh, no, these are different things. So I just want to say anytime that I refer to one of these stories as a fifth week event, I retract that. Fifth week events would be things like Sins of Youth, Tangent, Girl Frenzy, things like that, where we had this fifth week in the month and DC would put out these one shots all under a similar banner. So I'm sorry, very sorry. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, this one came out with a month that had five weeks. So that... um I believe. Yeah. Cause the JLA issue happened right in the middle of it. Um, but yeah, that, that, um, man, that was a weird time. <laughs> like every once in a while you go to the comic shop and it's just nothing but girl frenzy books, which, uh, some of them are good. I mean, there new year's evil was another one that I remember, uh, from 97, I believe. Cause I was going into 98. So yeah. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, just, I, I just, I just had a flood of uh, like, like if you ever watched the show Highlander when he has a memory and he goes, that's just what happened to me. So I apologize. <laughs> no, all, all good. But as we, as we get into 1 million, where does this fall for you? And I've seen some of your posts where you rank them. So I, I think I, I probably can answer this, but I toss it to you. Where does this kind of event fall for you within the hierarchy of these kinds of events, the zero hours and the final nights and the Genesis stories? Like where, where does 1 million land for you? Oh, it's a top five. Um, definitely. And I didn't really know that until a couple of uh, years ago, uh, when another friend of mine was covering Green Lantern and he had a episode all about DC 1 million and it made me dig it out and read it again. And then I realized, wow, this is, this is really one of the better ones they've put out. Um, my favorite will always be invasion, uh, because that was the first one that I was well, technically, the first one I was a part of was Millennium, but no one wants to claim Millennium. Um, it's not the best. <laughs> and the things it did to Lana Lang that they just at one point, I think they just at one of those super summits, they just had a collective like, we're not going to talk about this anymore. So, um, but yeah, Invasion's up there for me with Final Night and uh, Zero Hour and... Uh, and Armageddon in 2001, uh, which is a different type of crossover, but still a crossover. Uh, I don't put Crisis on the list because that's beyond the scope of this, <laughs> of, of such a list. I mean, because everyone's going to just just about everybody my age is going to say Crisis. So I just put that to the side as its own goat. Um, but yeah, definitely top five. I love this story and rereading it reminded me why I loved it so much. It, it is particularly strong. I've always sort of looked back on it fondly. I certainly remember reading this as it was coming out, and I've remembered it well, but I definitely came away from this reread with greater appreciation for it. There's a lot that I think really works well, and it's it's Morrison, so you have some you know crazy big ideas, and Superman's at the center of it. And we, we were messaging about this uh, over Twitter, but just kind of keeping in mind the context of this story. So this was 1998. So we're in the 60th anniversary year of Superman. We have this big event where Superman and the future, the dynasty, the legacy of Superman, right, is core to this story. 
it's smack in the middle of Morrison's renowned JLA run, which uh, we recently covered and is, is uh, you know, remains a favor. It's really my introduction to the Justice League, really. Uh, and within the context of the Triangle era, maybe this is where it gets <laughs> a little dicier, a little, you know, depending on, on your perspective, but right in the middle of two big Dominus storylines, uh, spinning out of Superman Forever and then uh, the King of the World story, one of which we've talked about, one of which we will talk about. So, you know, I guess again, just kind of an interesting spot that it occupies in, in the publishing history. Right. Yeah. And looking at it, it's like, you kind of saw where they were going to go about a year or so later. Um, especially with Mark Schultz writing two of the crossover issues. He was just a couple of months away from taking over Superman, the man of steel, uh, as a writer and bringing in a more science fiction, uh, take to that book. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's funny. I was kind of, I have vivid memories of, of, of this coming out, um, because it was just during that time period of my life where I was in my early twenties and hadn't met my wife yet. So I had a lot more time to myself. So, so going to the comic shop every week, picking up the latest batch. And I was reading a bunch of DC books at this time. Um, but yeah, it, it does land in this kind of weird, weird period in Superman's existence because I remember being disappointed that they didn't do more in 1998 to sell this, celebrate the 60th anniversary. Uh, and that's fan entitlement. I'll, uh, I'll cop to that. Because uh, it's like they did this and Superman for all seasons. And the first Dominus storyline was kind of a backdoor like celebration because they were doing different eras. But there wasn't a big, huge, like, anniversary issue like they did in the 50th. Uh, and it just seemed like, it just seemed like DC was just like, okay, we're going to do some Superman stuff. But they were really shifting into getting more Batman-centric around this time period as well. So I'm surprised the story got, got through, in all honesty. That's fair. That's fair. And I have to say, in looking through that, that wizard magazine, uh, around that Clark Kent article, it was just kind of interesting to see what else was going on in comics at the time. So just in that issue, they have an interview with, with, uh, Kevin Smith about his daredevil run, uh, which was just getting going and Batman, no man's land was, we were at the outset of that. So, uh, you know, other things as well, but those were, those were the, the Spider-Man relaunch right? Where Howard Mackey took over both, you know, all, all that business. So yeah, I mean, it's just interesting always to kind of think about what else was going on at the time around all of this, but I'm glad that we did get one of these big crossover events that Superman was at the center of. Yeah. And, and this was their, their mode once a year, they did, um, a big event. And I, and I have found that my interest in their events depend on how heavily Superman is involved. Uh, I mean, if you look at Genesis, which I'm sure you did, and I apologize, uh, you know, respect, uh, there's only like two issues that crossed over with it. The other is noped right out of it. <laughs> like, like, we're not even going to touch it. <laughs> I'll be honest. When we did that episode, I did read the the Superman issues that did tie in. I did not go back and reread the core miniseries. That was one of those ones I remembered enough from reading it initially. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. <laughs> but, uh, so don't give me too much credit. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do all the homework that I could have. <laughs> <laughs> so DC 1 million, right. For anyone who is 
uh, unfamiliar or needs a refresher. Uh, the setup for this is that the Justice League of the 853rd century from the year 85,271, Justice Legion A shows up in the present to invite the current day JLA to visit the future for the return of the prime Superman. He spent a hundred centuries in the sun in his solar fortress of solitude, and now he's returning. So our JLA is going to go to the far future to participate in these challenges, to perform feats, all part of this celebration. And of course, as soon as our JLA gets to the future, they are mistaken for bizarro duplicates and attacked, all a plot of Solaris, the tyrant son, who is aligned with Vandal Savage. And meanwhile, in the present, the future Our Man uh, unwittingly carried this virus back with him that's infected man and machine, uh, just as the present-day Vandal Savage is enacting this nuclear plot to take over the world. So a lot of stuff going on, tying together the past and the far future. And of course, we get the 853rd century and that specific year. I guess Morrison crunched the numbers, and that's when the one millionth comic, uh, you know, DC comic would be published if we followed it uh, all the way through, right? I guess that's the idea. Yeah, I... <laughs> I remember hearing the concept for it, like this is what the year would be if Action Comics number Action Comics got to one million, and I'm like, bold of you to think that there would be even comics in the 853rd century, but you know, the, I mean, it's it's a good hook. DC, the 90s were a, a decade of gimmicks. Uh, you know, you had Zero Month right after Zero Hour, uh, so just to befuddle people who index comics or as you well know, file comics in the back issue section of a comic shop. Um, you know, now there's a 1 million issue <laughs> to worry about. But what I liked about it is that it did have kind of a hook. Like if you wanted to opt out of DC for the month, you, you could. And it wouldn't even screw up the numbering of your issues. Uh, but if you were following Morrison's JLA which was, that was a force of nature, uh, you know, in the late 90s. JLA as a, as a brand was like, they had miniseries and specials and $6 prestige format books uh, that had nothing to do with the main, uh, the, the main series, but they'd slap that logo on it and I would buy it. Uh, so, you know, it did its job. But this, like you said, this is the halfway point, and I really just appreciated it on that level. Like halfway through his run, he's referencing something that happened uh, earlier in the Rock of Ages story, uh, and now that's coming to fruition, while still also seeding things for the future, not only for the Justice League, but for DC as well. There was one moment where I was just like, are they that's like three months away. Are they talking about hypertime? And yes, they were talking about hypertime, uh, which I guess we'll have to explain at some point <laughs> for those that weren't there and don't understand what the heck it was. Cause it didn't last very long, but uh, no, I, 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 I just love that for a month, basically DC said, okay, Grant, we're going to give you the line. Um, Everyone's going to opt in. Uh, and I think, like you said, like it was just about every title uh, from from Resurrection Man, who plays a very important part later in the sh in the 
on the series to the Legion of Superheroes, which took place a thousand years after this to confuse things even more. So uh, I guess the, the after going through, and I'm not going to sit here and badmouth DC comics from like 2004 up until like 2016 or even after that. Um, but there was a, there was kind of a mean edge to the company and the way they approach their stories. And reading this, I forgot when it was just fun. <laughs> like, like it was like everything about this is just Grant Morrison having a grand old time doing what Grant Morrison does best. He did it in final crisis in 2008 or nine. He, he has like a story that makes a lot of sense uh, built around a concept that is much higher than that. So you have a virus that is taking over the earth and you have Vandal Savage committing nuclear terrorism. But on top of that, you have a sentient son who is trying to kill Superman, who's been living in the sun for a hundred centuries. This is peak Grant Morrison to me. For sure. And I've always said that the this JLA era of Morrison is probably my my favorite because I think you do get all of those big, wild, crazy ideas filtered through a little bit more of a digestible superhero prism. My mileage has kind of varied on on some of, of their other work, but at, at the same time, I've definitely come around on a lot more, especially over the course of, of doing this podcast and other shows as well. So uh, I think my perspective on Morrison has has expanded a little bit, but uh, certainly going back to that time and even just the way I still look look at their work generally, this this really is the sweet spot where, again, you're getting those huge ideas, but uh, again, a little bit more, um, I don't know, palatable or digestible. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. One of the big picture things I wanted to ask you, because we talked about it on this podcast when we covered All-Star Superman. We talked about how you can read All-Star Superman and One Million as companions, spiritually, if not in a strict continuity sense. And I gave my whole take then, so I don't need to rehash it. I want to get your take. This idea that, and look, we know it's, they're all imaginary stories, and this is just one potential future and all of that. But in the context of this, the notion that, that our Superman lives into the 853rd century, and we get actually in that Man of Tomorrow issue by, by Mark Schultz in particular, we get a lot of backstory about what happened mm -hmm. uh, between, between those two times. But the notion of our Superman outliving everyone and living that far into the future and, and living for 100 centuries in the sun how do you feel about that sort of path and future for, for Superman? So I, um, I'm kind of a meat and potatoes Superman guy. Um, I, I really like when Superman is kind of the most fantastic thing in his world. Uh, and that is totally because when I started reading the Superman books, it was in the early days of the post-crisis era. So, you know, John Byrne was doing like big, huge superhero stories but Wolfman was telling these kind of grounded, like, you know, metropolis city stories, which just attracted me. And then as I grew older and read more, the Superman stories that I gravitate towards, like the early golden age era, the radio era, the first season of the George Reeves series, uh, the post-crisis, all of these 
are Superman stories where he's the, the biggest deal in the book. And I appreciate the inventiveness and the creativity that writers who are particularly inspired by the silver age where literally anything could go. We're, we're going to have a story where Perry white smokes a cigar and it gives him superpowers. Uh, this seems like a legitimate story to tell. And there's a lot of fun to be had there. But when you're like dealing with a Superman that can count the grains of sand on Mars, just by sitting in his room, you know, like, like his apartment on three, four, four Clinton, I, that that's where I'm just, it's not like I fall asleep. It's just where I start to kind of like the gravitational force weakens. So the idea of Superman living into the 853rd century surviving inside of a sun and then emerging from that is one of those things that I enjoy and I cheat a little because I'm like, well, that's after all of the stories that I want to hear or I want to read about, or they're all done. So it's okay that, you know, it's like, it's so far in the future. I'm not going to live that long <laughs> to see it happen. Uh, that might be a weird way to like, you know, bring it all in my head. Um, but it's one of those things I appreciate. It's just not my prefer way. It's not my preferred Superman stories. Uh, now I'm starting to sound like the guy in that issue of episode of Brave and the Bold. That's not my Batman, uh, <laughs> which isn't what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, but I hear you. And that's the thing. I, I, I land in the same place as well. I think it's, it's a really cool idea. And I think especially for, for a Morrison story, or Morrison really looked at these characters as living myths, right? As, as gods among men. There's something that tracks, right? That this is what becomes of the character. But it's, as I said in that other episode, there's something so profoundly sad to me, right, about my favorite character carrying out that kind of existence. That's why I, I will always gravitate to whatever happened uh, to the Man of Tomorrow, uh, you know, re regardless of what issues my people ha people might have with that story. Where it leaves the character, you know, to to, to me, it just it it feels right in a way where this just makes me sad that he's. Uh, you know, just enduring this, uh, this lonely existence for a crazy amount of time, <laughs> just an insane amount of time. And we have a very hopeful finish and a reunion with Lois and the birth of new Krypton at the end. It's, it's a very hopeful finish, but that time in between, I, I wouldn't wish, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, let alone my favorite character. So I think it's, again, it's cool as an idea. It's cool as a, as a potential but there's no part of me as a fan that would ever kind of say, oh, I really like I, I, that's a, that's that's what I see when I envision the future of Superman. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020. Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join All Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. 
Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw Yeah! Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. You know, I, I every once in a while I, I listen, you know, I... I I hear people talking about Superman as a character, not just talking about his stories or whatever. Uh, and, and it's usually around the issue of the Kents being alive or not alive, uh, which uh, I don't know if you know this, Anthony, Superman fandom can be divisive. You don't say. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 I'm still suffering from wounds from the civil war from 2013. Um, but it, it there's this thing that people who are like really big fans of the character are like, well, I just like, you know, the loneliness he feels. And that always strikes me as just like, I'm like, okay, on on a level that humanizes the character, uh, because then you're bringing Superman down to us. Uh, You're taking him away from being an aspirational figure and you're acknowledging the fact that there is a certain sadness around him, not only in losing you know, his entire world, but then losing his parents. And I just listed that. I'm like, why would you want him to be lonely? <laughs> I mean, I know, <laughs> I, I mean, I know it's, it's, it's a fictional character, but at the same time, I, I, I don't like the idea of Superman being like this solitary figure because when you have him in that mode, you're, it's almost like you're torturing him for no reason. You're, you're, you're not allowing him to have an existence that is somewhat normal. It's, it's like why, when they revealed the identity, for example, I was just like, well, what's he going to, where's he going to go? I mean, at the very least, Clark Kent allows him to go get a Danish if he wants to go get a Danish without being mobbed. So I, I I'm I, worse. I have found that you and I are simpatico uh, to use a really pretentious term. Uh, on a lot of things with Superman. And this seems to be one of the big ones where we're both like, why would anybody want him to be sad or lonely? <laughs> that, that, that doesn't track with me. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And I guess what, what I would also point to is that there's, I, I guess I feel like there's enough, there's enough sadness or loneliness already baked into the character. He, he lost a world he'll never know. He has the side of himself that he can't share. So there's always something that he kind of has to hold back. That I guess that to me is enough, and that uh, that provides enough <laughs> uh, enough of an avenue to to be able to sell, you know identify with, with whatever the case may be to then say oh well we're we're also going to kill off the people who raised him or we're going to you know do away with the secret identity it's just like nah like I, I, that's a bridge too far for me and I feel like it's just un, unnecessary so that's sort of another component to it as well where it's like there's you know there's there's enough already there <laughs> where you know it's it's not like he's you know suffering per se, but that he's he's been through enough, and there's enough that he's reckon you know uh, wrestling with that we can sort of sink our teeth into from a dramatic perspective. So yeah, I uh, 
I, look, at the same time, as I always say, for, especially for fans of One Million, for people who are like, no, like I love, I love that notion. It's like, that's great. I don't begrudge anyone that. But yeah, it's not anything I would ever, I would ever wish for the character. So. Yeah, I, I, I picked up a, a saying from a friend years ago. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, we're talking about concepts that ultimately matter, but they don't impact like your ability to live. So this is one of those times where I can actually say we can agree to disagree and it's fine. Um, Superman has been around for 80 plus years. You are never going to, I, I always joke from the, the pilot episode of the greatest American hero uh, where Bill Maxwell tells Ralph Hinckley, we couldn't agree on how to make Kool-Aid. And if you get five random Superman fans in a room, you're going to get five wildly different opinions about that character. They, they may like come together on some things, but there's always, <laughs> it's the crypto. It's what I call the Kryptonian bridge too far. Like some people are like, I like this, but I don't like that. Or I like this, but when it gets to this point, that's where, you know, I, I tap out and I'm just going to hang out here. So and it's all valid. That's the great thing. That's the amazing thing about these arguments is at the end of the day, everybody's right. <laughs> it's yeah, no, very, very, very true. Something that all fans I think should always <laughs> keep in mind. We all bring our own baggage, our own perspective. It's, it's all good. One thing though, that I really did appreciate in this event is that Superman himself, I think expresses a lot of the, uh, the, the, the misgivings or issues that, that we have, right. He expresses it as well. He's, you know, he says like, I'm, you know, his initial reaction, right, when Justice Legion A shows up, he's like, I'm alive in the 853rd century. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when we get to- I the- love that, that that was his initial reaction. Like, I don't even know if I want to know this. It's it's just such a great human reaction to such a concept. I mean, in all honesty, that's, that's probably a thread that would have been worth exploring even more, you know, in the months to come. Mm-hmm. I know they had other fish to fry and all that, but- that's, that's again, insane, you know, and, and especially for this era of Superman, the more grounded human version of the character, this notion that I'm alive in 85,271 would be, would be mind boggling. And I love when we get to the, to the, to the wrap up of the story where he doesn't want to meet Superman prime, right? He tells the Superman of the Justice Legion, he's like, I'm going to go like, he'll understand. Right. That like, that's not even something that he wants to entertain. And he expresses to, to Jean at the very end, like, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> I think Jean is like, well, you get used to it and it's only one potential future. And like, he kind of tries to put him at ease. I feel like there's more that could have been done there, but I did appreciate Superman's reaction to all of this. And I think it, uh, it, it sort of gives some credence to, to what we're saying, the misgivings that, that we have from the fan perspective. Yeah. I think one of the strengths of this, event for Superman is that he had five titles. So you could explore not only the Superman of the present, but the Superman of the justice Legion a and what he was going through and seeing him meet Lois and seeing him like meeting Lex Luthor and just completely trusting him because in his era, because of the, of one of the, one of the dynasties as they call them, you know, Luthor and Superman are now friends and, you know, there, there is no enemy. So when he gets kind of double crossed, it's almost like worse for him because he's used to working with 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 this guy's descendants. And then you see Superman in the future at first. 
you know, just like, okay, I'm just going to play these games and then I'm just going to go home. This is a big party. I get it. And when the crowd turns on him and talk about being prescient of Morrison introducing the idea that if you use what is essentially social media to sow seeds of doubt, it creates chaos. I was just like, this is perfect. Like this sings now in a way that I don't think it did in 1998. <laughs> oh, a thousand percent. I was thinking the same thing, right? Cause Solaris is able to corrupt the head net, this telepathic news network. Right. And just kind of bombard people with, with all of these sound bites and just, you know, just twist their perception of, of what's happening and make it seem like Superman and the rest of his counterparts from the JLA are these, you know, uh, bizarro duplicate imposters. And yeah, definitely just, I feel like in terms of, of yeah, social media and just of media generally, like just the, the dangers of all of that. Yeah. This tapped into a lot. I'm with you. I, it definitely, I mean, a being older now, but also just what we've been living through. Yeah. This hit a lot, <laughs> a lot more powerfully now than it did when I was, you know, a kid reading this in, in, in the late nineties. It's like, I read it now and it's like, mm, yeah, there's really something to that. Yeah. I mean, I was barely on the internet at this time um, because there was a time where you made that choice. Um, and it was right around this era that I started like going online and finding Superman websites and finding out that I was wrong, um, which was an interesting experience. Uh, so it, it definitely didn't hit me then. It didn't hit me the last time I read it. But like you said, with everything we've been through, um, Art is interesting in that way, where it can uh, it can kind of mean different things depending on the what is going on societally. Just in general, uh, I I just loved seeing how both Superman dealt with being in different eras, uh, because one of the cool things about the Superman of Justice Legion A, which is a mouthful. Um, is that he was also losing his powers throughout the course of the story, which I think ramped up the drama of his end of it. And uh, I just, reading it this time, I appreciated him more. Um, I used to not really like the character all that much, especially when they were bringing him back. Um, And I think any Smallville fan will appreciate his S symbol (laughs) (laughs) on his chest. (laughs) So... That might hit a different generation, but I just, I just really liked watching him have to fight just in a, such a backwards era, losing everything that he is used to being able to tap into. And yeah, if you look at the timeline between the, the, the book, the main book and the crossovers, it doesn't quite line up, but you're never going to have that 100%. So that I kind of let go. But yeah, I just loved watching him fight his way back to the past so that when he got or to the future so that when he got there and he was like powered up again, it was like a fist pumping moment. Like, oh, this is this is one of the big moments that Morrison was leading to. And it paid off just beautifully. Yeah, it was really cool when you get to the point where he is trying to to punch his way through the time barrier right? There's this, you know, time travel device that Steel was working on and didn't get all the way there. And he's, you know, he's, he's trying to get through and get back to the future. Uh, and he's sending these shockwaves throughout time and he's getting older and weaker. And he's just basically at, at the, at the end here, at the end of his rope. 
Uh, and like you said, then he makes it. And it is that fist pumping moment. It really, uh, it, I thought it played really well. So that definitely was was effective. And I echo what you said, the fact that we had five Superman titles. So, you know, for this episode, we reread the core four-issue miniseries as well as uh, the, the issue of JLA 1 million and the five Superman titles. I did, uh, per our exchange, I did also at least skim through the Supergirl, Young Justice, and uh, and Superboy issues as well. To this day, I've still never read every single one million tie-in. H- have you? Have you ever done the full deep dive? No, I've, I've never. Uh, that is going to happen because we've planned on covering DC one million. Like um, around the time this episode's coming out, we might be in the middle of our final night coverage, uh, which is what we also did with Zero Hour where we cover the main book, the Superman book, and then just talk about the other crossovers. This one's going to be more reading. because <laughs> There's just so many of them. Um, but I have never sat down and read every single one. I have read all... I, at the time, I was collecting Batman, the three Batman titles, uh, Robin, Nightwing. Uh, I was collect- Basically, if you were a JLA member, I was collecting your title. Uh, so I read them back then and I have like zero memory of most of them at this point because it's been 25 years almost. So <laughs> that's, I, I, I've got a good memory. It's not, it's not Mark Wade level. So I, I can't, I can't claim that. No, I hear you. I, I have to say I did struggle a little bit with the the correct reading order. So I, I used to own the, the single issues and I since sold those. Uh, so I was reading on the DC app and they have it listed in two different ways as a storyline and as a series. And I think the series order tracked better. So I would probably recommend that, but there are sites out there that will give you a, a more specific breakdown and uh, you know, you, you can see how things line up, but then there are certainly issues. I think Supergirl probably is a good example that really don't have any, you could kind of read that <laughs> wherever or skip it and others that do tie in more specifically. Yeah, the Young Justice was Young Justice and Supergirl were both written by Peter David. And one of the things about Peter David's writing career is that, especially in the 90s, he was constantly getting screwed over by crossovers. He would be getting a storyline started and then he would have to participate in whatever big thing was coming that year. Uh, So I felt like his Young Justice story was him kind of poking fun at crossovers in general because each of the main, the Superboy, the Robin, um, and the impulse of the, the 853 3rd century was telling their version of a crossover event from their character's perspective. Uh, and it's kind of a Rashomon thing where they're, they're, they're making their character the most important. Uh, and he also snuck in some weird references. Uh, Robin, the Robin of the future talks about what a great ice skater Robin was. And I don't know if this was for a fact, but Burt Ward was a championship ice skater when he was a kid, uh, before he grew up to be Robin on television. So I don't know if that was like Peter David's like cheeky, like deep, deep cut Easter egg. Um, and the Supergirl one, has nothing to do with DC 1 million. It's just, it's just this crazy. I don't know if it's because he had a bunch of daughters and he was just tapping into the fact that little girls can come sometimes be kind of uh, like little kids in general can just be like destructive. (laughs) And Superboy, I actually was really impressed with Carl Kessel's ability to 
participate in the crossover, but keep all of the story beats from his run on Superboy at the time going as well. So they're not necessary, but they're fun. Uh, so if, if you're doing like a, a big grand read, yeah, put them in. Uh, my reading order was, and I, and I found this is true with most of the crossovers, you read the first issue and then always read the Superman issue that came out that week before the main book, the main crossover book. And usually that doesn't um, steer you wrong in terms of a, of a chronology. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I, yeah, that Superboy issue actually was a stand. Like the Young Justice one was fun. And I, I have a lot of uh, affinity and affection for that Young Justice series. I, I enjoyed that a lot when it was coming out. I'm so overdue for a reread of the entire thing. We'll, we'll get there eventually. Uh, but that one was a lot of fun for all the reasons that you laid out. And yeah, the Superboy one, I did think that the structure of it was really cool and a nice way to to participate in the crossover while still maintaining the integrity of the stories that you've been telling because they find the frozen body of Jim Harper, the guardian in the 853rd century. And then through, uh, the, the 1 million version of, of double X are able to kind of see the last things that he had seen in our present day. And so you get our time in the, the 1 million world, but also our time in the present day. And I thought that was a cool, yeah, that was a cool balance. The structure of that was really neat. And Kessel at that point was really tapping into Kirby concepts. Like when he came back to Superboy, uh, not too long before this, he basically made Superboy commandy. Uh, and then he drops him straight into Cadmus, uh, which is, I think something that character needed at the time. Uh, so you have all of these crazy Kirby concepts, uh, written by somebody that loves the King and an artist that is able to bring those to life. I mean, Superboy 1 million looks like OMAC uh, that, 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 you know, he's got the Mohawk and everything. So it was just like one of those things where all of this just makes perfect sense. And it seemed like it seemed to me from looking at the material that the creators were having fun with it instead of, you know, this is like a slog to get through for them. Yes. No. Well, I, I agree with that. And, you know, among those five Superman titles, we get a, a couple of issues following the future Superman in the present, right? As he's trying to stop uh, Vandal Savage's uh, nuclear attack uh, against Metropolis, right? He's uh, gotten the jump on the Titans characters and placed them inside these uh, rocket, these decommissioned Rocket Red war suits and has sent them to various targets. Uh, and then we also have, I mean, I think, you know, the, the Superman issues in particular really do you know, tie in. Uh, very specifically to the ongoing story where the future Superman realizes that uh, the only way to defeat this virus uh, in, in the present day is to create Solaris, the villain that is ultimately responsible for all of this. So, which I thought was a cool, I thought that was a cool twist on the proceedings and, and a great plan, right. For, for the villain to have like all of this is to ensure that, that it is ultimately created. Uh, to to exist and enact this plan in the first place. So I thought that was neat. And then, you know, the fact that one of the things that Superman asks for is is a DNA, a human DNA sample, right? And Lois gives her blood. And then, of course, in the far future, Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner, will have to retrieve that DNA sample, and that will be part of what's used to recreate Lois for Superman Prime. So, you know, you get a lot of those little pieces uh, along the way. So reading the Superman books at, at a minimum uh, in conjunction with the main miniseries is definitely the way to go. Yeah, and the main miniseries itself was Morrison ratcheted up to 11. Um, 
there is like an over the top nature to everything about this. But at the same time, it doesn't come at the expense of character. So when you, when they introduce the Titans, for example, and it's not really a real version of the Titans because this is shortly before they did the JLA Titans miniseries, which led into the Devin Grayson series. Um, <laughs> Morrison's kind of mean to these characters <laughs> in how other characters are talking about them. Um, but it, it, it's just having them be like the, the start of the threat to the present and Vandal Savage being part of it. Uh, Vandal Savage is one of my favorite villains of the DC universe. Uh, I kind of prefer him not to be a cannibal, but you know, different strokes and all that. So the fact that he was a part of this, not only in the present, but in the future. And like you said, the little things that Morrison would do through the course of the story, like in the future, he's got an eye patch. Well, why does he have an eye patch? Well, it's because right, right during one of the big fights, he loses an eye. Um, and I don't know if you've ever read Justice League Task Force, uh, which was a very 90s title, I might add. Uh, during Towards the end of that run, uh, Christopher Priest took it over and made it like the Justice League training team. Uh, they all had jackets because it was 1995. And he brings in Vandal Savage. Uh, and it was reading those issues that made me excited to see him here because... That Vandal Savage was in that story was tracking down his descendants so that he could have organs to replace the ones of his that have failed. Uh, and it's just like, well, that's an interesting high concept. So here we have a Vandal Savage that is very much the I'm an immortal and I'm better than you, uh, which is, I think, a Morrison staple. He's really good at writing obnoxiously smart people. Uh him and Mark Miller both have that tick. It's kind of interesting, but I just love seeing it. And then, you know, starting it on day three in the first issue and then immediately going back a couple days, it's like, well, what the heck is going on with John Jones? And then you realize they've just nuked a city in the DC universe. <laughs> yeah. Monte, like, Monte Video, Yeah. Gets, gets wiped off the, off the face of the planet. And you know, what's funny going in, not funny, but going into this, I, I, for my, my memory was playing tricks on me and I thought that through some time travel machinations, it would, it was saved by the end of it. I thought this was going to be undone, but it's, but it's not. I mean, the twist at the end, right. Is that the future of Vandal Savage is transported there, right. As the new kits, but it still hits. So yeah, you know, high, yeah, high, no, high stakes they, here. And I think that's also why, you know, it's like double jeopardy Superman, even with your great, you know, speed, you can't catch two missiles. Not only are we dealing with a, a virus that is attacking both humans and machines and making you more violent and not as rational, uh, but you're also dealing with the fact that there's a nuclear terrorist uh, threatening the rest of the world with what they think are missiles, but are actually rocket red armor. So it's just like, the great thing about this crossover is it's so steeped into the DC universe. Like he plays with a lot of different toys that he doesn't usually get to play with, with the justice league and the justice league issue was great because everyone was over the top. Like everyone was yelling 
And then you have that great moment right at the end where the Batman of the 853rd century turns around, points at the reader and goes, I accuse you of being a traitor. And I'm just like, this is so great. I love this so much. <laughs> this is making me so happy. Yeah, it's look in typical Morrison fashion. I mean, it's busy. Like there's a lot. It's very kinetic. There's a lot going on. We have the the small group of leaguers on the watchtower who were, were not on earth. So we're thus not exposed to this, this virus and they're trying to build a time machine and figure out what's going on. And I really liked, you know, and of course the Superman fan here really liked that steel uh, was, was stepping up and assuming a leadership position. Uh, we get, we got this exchange in that JLA 1 million issue where Steel is like, I have to get back home, right, to, to protect my niece. And Plastic Man is like, you can't go. The one, well, the one black man on the team can't quit. And, he, and John Henry is like, listen, when I signed up, like I wasn't signing up to be the sole representative, you know, uh, you know in, in that capacity. But uh, just to see that character getting to play. And Huntress, you know, Huntress is the one who comes up with this whole idea of embedding John Jones on, on Mars uh, to kind of pay off all the way in the future, which... I don't know how the, how does the time travel logic of, of all of this work? Um, right before I answer that, I do want to point out that one of the things I noticed the last time I read this that I loved is that Morrison basically gave us a Trinity, a replacement Trinity with big Barda steel and Huntress. You have a Superman, Batman and wonder woman dynamic. Um, and I don't know if that was his intention. That is just what I took from the art. And like you, Steel is my favorite of the the the, the reign of the Superman characters. So seeing him getting and let's be fair, he has not gotten the best deal most of the time in comics. Nope. <laughs> so this this was one of those few times where it's like, oh, okay, we're we're going to treat him with, yeah. The, the the time travel thing is so it's everything has to work out just right. There is no margin for error on this. So he thinks that this thing buried on Mars was a piece of kryptonite, but it's not, it's a, it's a basically the makings of a green lantern ring, uh, leading to a brilliant moment where you see the sun and a green lantern symbol in the middle of it. And it's just like, and, 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 you know, John had to be on Mars. If he wasn't on Mars, in the future, none of this works. And as somebody that was reading the Martian Manhunter at the time, this was extremely frustrating because he had a zero issue, the million issue before his first issue. Only in the nineties could this happen. Um, but yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it doesn't track. If you look at it too deeply, like if you're sitting here with like a, a piece of paper and a, and, and a pencil and you're trying to like write everything out, don't. <laughs> just just kind of go with it. Uh, because if you look at it too much, it does seem like, okay, this isn't relying on coincidence. This is relying on a plan happening in an exact sequence of events that if anything falls out of place, you know, the, the day is lost essentially. Yes. Well, one thing I've learned with Morrison, yeah, is not to get too hung up on the particulars and just kind of go along for the ride and, I, I did not read the Martian Manhunter 1 million issue. Maybe this was explained, or maybe I just missed something generally. But if the idea is that, and not, not to harp on this, but like if the idea is that he's lying dor dormant on Mars, right, to be there in the future, it's like, well, but then is he not there in the present? Like, that's, well, that's, where, that's what I'm getting, uh, getting a little tripped up on, but it's okay. It's, it's, a, cool, it's a cool payoff. What, what we're assuming is that at some point, 
John just after all the adventures we're going to see him in in the next couple of years, John just leaves Earth and goes back to Mars and just chills for hundreds of centuries. I, su- I suppose. Also, on the note of Vandal Savage, the, the timing of this is, is interesting because we very recently covered a selection of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited episodes continuing threads from Superman the Animated Series. And so, of course, we had to take a look at the Hereafter two-parter where Superman is presumed dead, but is actually in the far future uh, where the Earth is this wasteland under a red sun and it's all uh, the the inadvertent uh, work of, of Vandal Savage. And you get this like crazy, unexpected, very enjoyable two-hander with Superman and Vandal Savage and they have to work together. Uh, so it was just kind of interesting to go from that very recently to this story here. I got certainly, again, a more traditional uh, version of the character, but you know, in my head, in terms of what I had just seen of Vandal Savage, it's like, no, like he's, he's, he's a friend, different version. <laughs> he's, he's crazy. Yeah. He, he's gone crazy being the only person on earth. I mean, the, that, that moment where he's like, perhaps I killed him over here. No, no, it was over here. You want to get lunch? It's just like, <laughs> okay, man, I, I, I get it. You're, you're getting too close. Personal space, Vandal, personal space. And Vandal Savage is one of those characters that you can do this type of story with. Uh, I, I feel like Morrison was really brilliant in selecting him to be the villain in the past and the villain in the future uh, and having him hate the wine in the present, but in the future he appreciates it more because he's learned to appreciate things more. It's just like, again, Morrison is really good at just little bits of character that just make you glom on to the characters and, and, and appreciate them more within the story he's telling. Like, you know, this, this is, this is high stakes. This is everything is on the line and we're going to have the Adam and Oracle flirting uh, as he's going through her body so that he can deconstruct what the, um, what the uh, virus, virus, what did they, why am I blanking on what the virus was called? Uh, oh, did it have it the Hour Man virus? I thought it had name? a name. Maybe I'm just giving Morrison a, a, a lot of credit that he also, he probably came up with a weird name. Um, but yeah, seeing like, you know, him again, reminding me of an episode of Justice League Unlimited where he goes to uh, break, to break down into the self-replicating machines. Um so now I'm hung up on the fact that I thought that there was a name and, and, and I'm just like, that that's where my brain is focused on right now. I'm sorry. If there is, I'm blanking on it. I really think they just kept referring to it as the, as the hour man virus or just the, virus. the hour man that. Yeah. And, and hour man, uh, you know, for a character that's kind of central to everything, they don't really give him much to do. No, he's, yeah, I know, uh, you know, certainly in the beginning and, but once that virus is deployed and you see him dealing with the, the, you know, the, the guilt of being the unwitting carrier of this, there's really not much uh, until the end. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. 
Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam just moved to the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers, and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you. So, I don't know. And, you know, and it's interesting too, because you have, of course, our JLA in the future uh, perceived as these bizarro duplicates and hunted. And then in the present, you have the 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 public distrusting Justice Legion A, because of course, right after our JLA goes away, this virus infects every man and, you know, and, and machine on the planet. Um, you know, and ultimately they did bring it here, though it wasn't their intention. So, you know, you have both teams in both eras, you know, sort of hunted and distrusted. And, and of course they're eventually able to overcome that, but, you know, dealing with a very similar threat in, in both respects. And I guess too, like the structure of all of this, yeah, in that main miniseries, we are really, you know, for the most part in the present, it's really when you get into all of those crossovers or the tie-ins uh, where you get to see more of of this one million world, this 853rd century. And, you know, going back to this idea just of some of the, the tie-ins, I mean, I didn't reread this for this, but I remember the, the Green Arrow one million issue. That was the last issue of the series. <laughs> like, I think 137 was the was ostensibly the last issue of that Chuck Dixon written series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they had a 1 million issue and it's, you know, it's, it is what it is and they have to sell comics, but it's like, really? It's like your series is done. And it's like, well, (laughs) attack on a 1 million issue. (laughs) Hey, he, they, they, they got to sell. Everyone's got to (laughs) participate. Participation is mandatory. It's just, uh, and some of them, like I, I just, for, for grins, I read the Starman 1 million issue. Um, which if you've never read James Robinson's Starman, I would, I would advise it. It's, it's, it's a great series, but what I loved is him being a traitor played into it because he meets his progenitor. Essentially he meets Ted Knight and he can't lie to him. And at the end, he's just like, you know, I I'm just a failure. I didn't even want this. And he flies off so that when he participates and makes the ultimate sacrifice play at the end, it just has so much more gravitas. This is one of those, I will say, that you can... The only one that is absolutely essential is you have to read JLA 1 million in the middle of it. 
you, if, if you don't read that, you're going to, you're going to get to issue three and you're going to be kind of lost. Um, and when they originally released like JLA trade paperbacks, like the issue before this is where that trade paperback ended. They had JLA DC 1 million and then they picked it up again. <laughs> and so you, you, you kind of have to read it and it's a really good issue. Uh, so that kind of helps. Uh, you got Howard Porter drawing it, which, um, I thought was interesting because he and Val Cmix had kind of a similar style. Like everyone is extremely broad shouldered uh, with, with these artists. It's not a bad thing. I, I liked both. Um, but I think in, in terms of having a, uh, an artist where it's not too much of a, a too much of a, a disconnect when you get from one story to another, uh, I thought that was smart. It's like reading some of the Superman ones. The art was kind of all over the place uh, <laughs> in terms of it. I felt kind of bad because the issue where they go through the Superman dynasty, I felt had the weakest art of the of the crossovers. And I'm like, this is the one where you needed to stick the landing on every single page because you're showing all these different versions of Superman through the eras. That was like the only complaint I had, though, uh, oddly enough. So... <laughs> So I guess if if that's my only complaint, this this whole this whole event has a lot going for it. Yes, no, for for sure. I, you know, th- that was actually one of the things I wanted to ask you because we tying back to what you were saying before, where if you really wanted to sit out this month of DC Comics, you could, and even even as a, a Superman reader following the ongoing Triangle Era adventures, you you really could because. With one exception, right? All of the issues, the, the Superman tie-in issues, are written by either Mark Schultz or uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, right? That that writing team. What what did you what did you make of the fact that we didn't? Because this was a departure, right, from what we would typically get from one of these crossover tie-in months, where for the most part we did not have our regular Superman creative teams doing the tie-in books. So 1998, Mike, was a little annoyed because I wanted the regular uh, creative teams. Uh, 2023, Mike, is realizing that this is the end of that era. So you you have more of this. Because I think, I don't know if it's the next month or the month afterwards, but there's an, for two years in 98, 99, they both had like a month of stories written by Ron Mars, which was like a four-part uh, story that had nothing to do with anything going on in the titles. So I guess this was, just, and, and maybe I should have taken that at the time as, Oh, this era is really coming to an end and they're just doing other things to kind of, it's not like they were doing it on purpose to prep us. Uh, I, what I found in reading them this time is that, uh, I really liked that Kessel and Ordway got to work together on one of the issues. But if you're going to do a really big sci-fi story, Mark Schultz and Dan Abnett, Andy Lanning are two people you want to go to. Like if you love guardians, the guardians of the galaxy movies, it's because of Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning doing reinvigorating those characters during annihilation that gave us that. So anytime I get to see them play in kind of a cosmic playground, I like it. And Mark Schultz really brought a, a, a freshness 
to the Superman books in exploring the more science fiction um, elements of his character, especially uh, when Eddie Berganza took over as editor, he was the sci-fi guy. Uh, that's where they looked at the Krypton stuff, which had not historically been a big part of the post-crisis Superman. It's just like he he wanted to have some connection to it, but he was just he was okay leaving that you know like in the fortress in the Arctic, and you know he can go play with that when he wants to. So. I, um, but yeah, yeah. In the past, when it happened, I was annoyed, uh, cause I wanted to see what Dan Jurgens was going to do with a future Superman or, uh, I think I didn't look at the timeline. We're almost at the point where Wheezy and Boggs are off the title. We're um, getting very we close to that. Of, and then there's a bunch of fill in up issues after that. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, I felt it worked for the story, but part of me is a little disappointed that I didn't get to see, you know, the, the regulars get a, get a chance to take a crack at this. Now I feel the same. And yeah, you're right. I believe the Ron Mars four parter this year was the Candor. There was a Candor arc. And then the following year, it's the one man JLA story mm-hmm. where, where, you know, he took over the books for the month. So yeah, I mean, and we really are, and that's you know what what we'll be covering in in the the, the remainder of this uh, electric to one million event. I mean, really, not the end of the triangle era, but the end of the triangle era as we knew it, the Dan Jurgens led uh, period within this. And so, so yeah, we are winding down. And I you know I think there might be something too exactly you know to what you said where maybe that accounts for why you know they didn't participate in this the way they had in the prior ones. But I agree. I think the the you know, the, the writers in question we're talking about, you know, did a great job and, and were a great fit for these kinds of stories. Um, is there, you mentioned how we get, you know, we got this insight into what became of Superman and the Superman dynasty and the alliance between the House of L and the Luthers. Uh, we know that at, at one point there's a, a marriage between a Superman and a member of the fifth, the fifth dimension. And that introduces all of these new senses and powers and things like that. Um, is there any, in terms of kind of what we find out about Superman and the Superman dynasty, is there anything that, anything else that really stood out to you and, or anything that, that wasn't addressed that you're like, oh man, it would have been cool to know what, whatever happened with, with X. Nothing that I felt was left out. I just, I just loved that eventually he just marries into his villains. (laughs) Um, and, and Mixie, you know, depending on your perception of Mixie, he's either a villain or he's just an imp that is just there to sow chaos. I think he works better that way. Uh, so I, I just, I just <laughs> when it said he married the person from the fifth dimension, I'm like, wow, that's a that's an open minded uh, member of the Superman family where he's just looking at that and going, yeah, that's what I want. And it's, it's one of those ways of introducing like the mega powers. And again, we, we were talking earlier where once, you know, it, it got way beyond my comfort zone. Um, however, because it was all, it's actually two things. One, it's all in the future, so it doesn't matter. And two, we've been through 15 reboots since we started this episode. So <laughs> I, I really feel like, I really feel like any era of Superman now can be enjoyed because it's not that it doesn't matter, but the continuity isn't important anymore. So you take the eras as they are instead of, oh, this is supposed to be the continuing adventures of Superman. 
So in that, in, this was, I think, the breaking point where DC as a company uh, wanted to move beyond what it had been done with the, the post-crisis era. And it's kind of funny, we're going to be talking about that article, but, you know, we're really winding down. And as much as I would have loved to have these guys on the, sh- on the series, you know, forever and ever and ever, that's just not how things work out. So I realize I went beyond your question. I apologize for that. I, I went on a, a bit of a tangent there. Um, but no, I, 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 the, the two things that stood out was the mixing with the Luthers and the marrying the fifth dimension uh, person. Um, I'm also just, I was also just fascinated at how some that they mentioned seemed to just die very quickly. <laughs> like, and, and that's an option for future Superman. Uh, I, more than anything though, I think the scope of that issue was way beyond what one issue, like they needed more room for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know what? That's a very good point. And I was thinking about this too, because that man of tomorrow issue is this massive info dump that comes really, it's the final week of this month long crossover event and it packs so much in where and because and, I had I had revisited this briefly in preparation for the All Star Superman issue that I did. I was like, okay, I want to get some of the main beats of of the One Million story. And so when I was rereading uh, All Star, I also read you know One Million One through Four, and then I was skimming through the Superman issues. And I remember getting to that Man of Tomorrow thing. And again, I had read it when it came out, but I didn't remember it. And I was going through, and I was like, oh wait, like this is big. Like <laughs> this lays out. <laughs> The entire timeline of events. So yes, I feel like that probably should have come earlier. In all honesty, as much as I I enjoyed, you know, over those five Superman tie-ins, we spent a couple issues with, again, Justice Legion, a Superman in the present and our Superman in the future. But really, like everything (laughs) that we get in that Man of Tomorrow issue, that should have probably been the Superman issues. And I love that they, in a narrative sense, they're like, okay, (laughs) It's almost like it's almost like explain this to me like I'm a five year old. Yeah, it's just like tell it as a story so that Superman will understand it. It's like Michael Scott on The Office when he doesn't understand what a surplus is and he asks Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 that's that's the kind of the beauty of, of that issue is that it's it's almost like and I don't know if you had this because I know last year you went through the the John Byrne run and Byrne had this thing. And it's something that Jeffrey and I noticed as we were reading it that I didn't notice at the first time, he would drop like 16 pages of exposition on the last page. <laughs> like every, like most of the issues ended with Superman telling you what happened. And that's kind of what this felt like. <laughs> like this was a giant John Byrne info, uh, info dump right at the end where it's just like, Oh crap. We, didn't explain any of this. We just said that there was a lineage, but we haven't really talked about it. Okay. Schultz go. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. And sort of the, the, I, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that analogy. And, and then the, uh, you know, sort of the framing device, he has platinum from the metal men, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of give this oral history and, and sort of the, 
uh, you know, the, the ultimate reason for it is that Solaris is, has, uh, is interfering with Superman's ability to teleport because he needs to reunite with the rest of the JLA in the 853rd century. And so, you know, what we find out eventually is that, uh, you know, Superman's plan was to, you know, kind of use this to, to goad Solaris to, you know, kind of play into his ego and jealousy and get him to, uh, to, to, to relent and, and have this final showdown. Uh, and so you get, you know, and Platinum gets a lot of play uh, in this. Uh, the Metal Men generally, we have a lot of Metal Men. I'm not the biggest Metal Men fan, so that didn't really, didn't do a lot for me, I have to say. No, they they were part of early uh, Action Comics uh, during the era when I started reading. Uh, I remember Action 599 not really understanding because I had not gotten 590 yet. So I'm just like, why is this important? Yeah, the middlemen are one of those concepts where I'm like, you have to be of a certain generation and a certain mindset to enjoy this. Uh, and not only that, it's not only the me- metalmen; it's the metalmen as conceived by Mike Carlin and Dan Jurgens for that miniseries from like 1994, where Doc Magnus became one of, became Viridium. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, this is one of those things where I pity people who are more contemporary or just didn't read it at the time, going back and reading it with zero context about what's going on. It's, it's, it's like when people read death of Superman, why does Supergirl turn into pink goo in the middle of the story? There is, there is absolutely no explanation of that anywhere. If you're just reading that trade paperback, (laughs) Listen, five-year-old Anthony had no idea what that was. <laughs> and he learned later, but at the time, it's like, oh, I guess that's just what Supergirl does. Yeah, I, I, guess- had, I had a friend I had a friend read Death of Superman back in 2012, and she's like, I'm going to have you on standby. I'm like, that's fine. And I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. And then one time, beep, look down. Why is Supergirl pink goo? I was like, here we go. <laughs> I think this if, is what I was waiting for. Like, I think if you're young enough, like I was young enough where I wasn't really going to question it again. I think in my young mind, it was probably just like, well, that's, that's Supergirl. But yeah, if you're, if you're thinking about it to any extent, it's like, yeah, it makes, it makes no sense. So, uh, and now obviously with the, the ability to look things up is, you know, we, we have that we can check anything, but still, especially at this time, it's like, yeah, you were just kind of plopped into it. But, but like we were saying, you know, in the, in the opening part of this 1 million event, there is this this tidbit that Superman traveled the stars right after, after, you know, for a period of time before taking up residence in his fortress of solitude in the sun. But it isn't until this man of tomorrow issue, unless there's some other tie in that gives us more, but I doubt it. It's only when you get to this man of tomorrow tie in that, you know, you see this or at least get some hints into this journey that he had. And when he comes back, they describe him as the Ishmael who's returned and his Mm -hmm. his white eyes and his costumes torn. And he's just a haunted shell of a man and that further feeds into what we were saying before, like why I hate this future for, for the character, because again, it's not like he comes back and he's like, you know, it's, it's sad that I lost the, the life I had built here, but I found a new one or whatever the case may be. I mean, this is like a broken man who floats on down uh, before he goes to the to the fortress in the sun. So it's a, this is a key issue uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. uh when I read this, that issue the other night, I was just like, I forgot that he came back as like this changed person where only going into the sun is, is going to be where he, f- I mean, everybody, you know, if, if you're feeling kind of down and out, maybe going to the beach, you know, getting some sun will make you feel better. Uh, I guess there's not a lot of vitamin D uh, in the universe, uh, but 
but yeah, that, that's just such a, such a tragic thing. I mean, and again, like you said before, he gets a happy ending. You know, there, there's always the happy ending, even in all-star Superman where, you know, ostensibly he dies at the end, you know, what's coming. So it's more of a, okay, this is for right now, but eventually, and the fact that you have that random, like I need a DNA sample and then they recreate Lois and then they recreate Krypton. And it's like, he gets everything he wants. And it's one of those times where a writer has given Superman an end, but it's not depressing. (laughs) I mean, getting there may have been a little depressing, but you know, he gets to have everything he wants at the end, you know, and then there's no telling what happened after Superman came back and the Kryptonians were reborn. Uh, it was really interesting. I keep forgetting, like, nowadays where Kryptonian clothing is either, like, people want to reference Superman the movie or they want to go in, like, a complete different sci-fi direction. I forgot. Oh, yeah, there was a point where it was only the John Byrne stuff. <laughs> I know. I was thinking that too, because, you know, again, I'm jumping around here. So I'm definitely seeing, you know, different, different versions of Kryptonian garb. And then you see this and it's like, no, yeah, we're firmly, we're still firmly in, in this era. I did. I really did like how we saw those events through the eyes of Kyle Rayner as he's uh, sharing mm-hmm. everything with, with John and, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying before about Morrison's treatment of various characters. But I think you especially see this with, with Kyle and with Wally, uh, in Morrison's JLA run, you know, really building them up as, as characters. And, you know, when, you know, Kyle's the one who has to create this, create and contain this supernova and Batman's guiding him. And it's like, you know, he's struggling, right? He doesn't know if he could do it. And Batman believes in him. He gives him that push. And then of course, future Superman shows up to lend a hand, but you know, I love the role that he plays. And as Kyle is, is sharing everything that he saw, it's just this sense of, of grandeur and wonder and disbelief. Like he's just, kind of in shell shock over what he's experienced naturally, but it just, I think it gives the proceedings such weight as he's talking about, about future Superman, where he's like, this guy, like he's been on adventures we can't imagine. Um, and then, and then of course we get the wink, right? The final Superman yep, story. Right always got to end. end with the wink as the golden Superman prime turns and gives that wink. It's, I got chills as I was reading it. it it's like I said, not, not my preferred ending for the character, but I like it. And it, it were again, like it, it conjured a response in me. So there's something to be said for that. Absolutely. And yeah, keying off really quick for something you said, what Morrison did when he did the JLA is that if you look at DC comics through the course of the nineties, there was a period right after zero hour and right up until JLA where DC seemed to be wanting to embrace the, more image style uh, of the time period. Things were more violent. The art got kind of weird. You know, like even in the Superman books, you had bloodthirst. Uh, Not the most memorable of Superman uh, villains, um, but bloodthirst and blood sport and high tech. Uh, And it seemed like right around the time of Kingdom Come, and, and they talk about this. Uh, I don't know if you remember the comics at the time had this watch this space yep. feature in every issue where they would kind of tell you like behind the scenes stuff that's going on. And at one point they talk about the fact that it seemed like DC 
as a company said, you know what? We've got really good characters and we've got really good writers. We're going to lean into that. And it was like after Kingdom Come and then with JLA, it was like this this renewed sense of just fun and optimism just in general with the entire universe. And with JLA, Grant Morrison's like, okay, you have the Magnificent Seven. So Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman, and John have all been around for a while. So Wally and really Kyle are your entrance characters because Kyle's new to this. He's been part of teams, but he's never been with the big leagues. And so that's why at the end of the first JLA adventure, you have him going, looking at the, the, the watchtower on the moon and going, cool. Because <laughs> that's what you as the reader are supposed to be doing. Yes. No, I, I agree totally. Before we do our wizard article lightning round, is there anything else about 1 million that we haven't hit on that you wanted to, or that we should? No, we, we hit everything that I, that I had kind of written down that, that occurred to me at the time. Um, I, I just, I think in terms of having time travel be uh, a fun gimmick to use, having Vandal Savage be transported by Kronos uh to where the new kits was just chef's kiss. <laughs> Great way to end it. Like this guy thinks he's one and it's just one final like F you from resurrection man and Kronos. Yes. No, it, it was, it was the, the perfect button to the story. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I obviously we didn't do a, a issue by issue breakdown, but I think we, we definitely hit on, on the key aspects of this. I will say it got it for, and this is a little nitpicky, but I feel like it was a little bit much at a certain point in reading these tie-ins, the number of characters. And I'm sure there were more in the tie-ins that we didn't read where present day characters are still alive in the future, right? So it's like Platinum's still alive. Uh, you know, they they defrost uh, Jim Harper Guardian. Uh, oh, Resurrection Man is still, <laughs> still, still... And again, it's not that it doesn't make sense, right? Like it tracks for those characters, but it's just at a certain point, it's like, how likely is it that, that Superman himself, of course, why is people still alive? 853rd century, but, uh, but no, just a very, very, it was a fun story. It was definitely worth revisiting uh, the, I guess the last big thing that I wanted to mention and ask, how is it that we have not gotten like an animated movie adaptation of something like this? That is, that is kind of weird because, you know, Morrison's a popular creator and this seems to be something that would lend itself to an animated feature of some sort. I mean, it, I don't know if, I mean, we've got all-star Superman, which I would argue more than this one does not lend itself to a movie because that's such an episodic story. Uh, this has a beginning, middle and an end. So, and it flows. And, you know, if you have people that are buying into a justice league, you're going to have people that are going to buy into a justice league from the future. Uh, so, and, you know, introducing a tyrant son, uh, <laughs> which years ago when I, when I helped, uh, my friend Stella cover this on her back roll, uh, podcast, we put a challenge out to have somebody like draw a cute version of Solaris <laughs> and they did, it was kind of adorable, but no, this, this would let, I would love to see a, like a, like an animated film based on this just because you could do such crazy things in the animation uh, and really tell the story because while there's a lot going on, 
it's not a complicated plot. Agreed. I know that's the thing. It's very busy, but when you boil it down, it it's pretty simple and straightforward, right? And it's like once the present day uh, team is able to build to build Solaris, right? The the you know the virus is dealt with. Starman sacrifices himself. Solaris is dealt with for the time being, you know. And then we have to deal with reconnecting uh, in, in the future. So maybe I'll tweet. Uh, maybe I'll tweet at James Gunn because he responds to everybody. It seems so. Uh, I'll just say hey. <laughs> anyway. So this wizard article, right, this this uh, piece that I've been referencing called Clark Kant by the wizard staff, which, listen, I can appreciate, you know, wanting to uh, offer some critique, some criticism, some assessment of the Superman books. But I also feel like, you know, listen, put your names to it if you're going to, <laughs> to do something like this. But no, it is what it is. This was the first issue of Wizard I ever bought. This article you know, it has, it's definitely stuck with me uh, over all these years in part because it was the first one and it was speaking directly about the main books I was reading at the time. So like, I remember flipping through this and it was like, you know, is my first experience with this magazine and with this kind of, and in a pre-internet era, essentially, you know, my first real experience with this kind of, of, of criticism or, or analysis. So, uh, what I thought I would do is I'll just sort of, I'm not going to read the whole article, but I'll, I'll rattle off some of the the main points, their main headings here, and I'll just get get your response. And again, we're talking about this exact period of time. So we've had the Electric Superman saga. We've had that first Dominus storyline. We're in the midst, or just about, of one million. We're going to be heading into uh, the King of the World storyline. So this is what Wizard had to say about Clark Kant at the time. Uh, so number one is stories, not events, right? So they call out all the stories we've been talking about on the podcast, uh, Dead Again, Death of Clark Kent, The Trial of Superman, The Electric Superman Saga. Uh, so Wizard charges too many events at the expense of, you know, one-offs or two-part stories, smaller scale stories that tap more into the core of the character. So what's your take? So I remember feeling that at the time. Um, and... You know, man grows older and suddenly things are very clear and uh, what I, and, and in, uh, especially in talking with the creators, which changes your perception of the story. When you get the behind the scenes stuff, it, it kind of, uh, it may not like completely change your mind, but it gives a little more context to it. Um, they're not wrong, but also that was what was working so it's kind of hard. What what they're basically telling the creators is, you know, that thing that's kind of kept your your your, your story engine running. You need to stop doing that. Um, that feels like it's coming from somebody that's almost like on the outside looking in, uh, saying, "Well, they're they're doing all these events. They're not really doing stories, and to a certain extent, they're not wrong, but." Also, if you look at the Electric Blue era, that's not a storyline, that's an era. So there's different things happening within that. Um, so I I partially agree, but only because I know how the story ends. Agreed. I, I think there's, and I've talked about this, but I think there is a certain stretch in, you know, like the, the fall of Metropolis and Dead Again and Death of Clark. There is a stretch where I was feeling that a little bit, but when we get into the Lois and Clark breakup and the, like, even the Electric Superman saga, like as much as we have that, you know, gimmick as our initial setup, you know, we're settling into, like you said, this era and we're getting a lot of different kinds of stories. So 
yeah, I, I, I sort of, I don't only agree with this to a point. Uh, Rogue's Gallery. The next item sort of calls out the villains who were plaguing Superman at the time and how basically we needed some, some heavy hitter, heavier hitters uh, there. How'd we fix it section says, uh, let's see. Oh, set up Mongol and Brainiac as the ruthless monsters they are. Don't use Cyborg or Doomsday. Make Don't overuse Cyborg or Doomsday. Make their appearances count. Find a way to bring back Conduit and the Eradicator. Well, I'm always on board for Conduit. Uh, and try to find a way to make Bizarro more than a joke. So, uh, yeah, so kind of on this note of the villains. Um, Doomsday wasn't around that long, uh, all that much, y'all. He really wasn't there. I mean... If you look at Doomsday's appearances, it's like the bit the, the main storyline, Hunter Prey, and the Doomsday Wars. Uh, it's almost like they were looking into the future where Doomsday, like like <laughs> Jeff Loeb had a army of Doomsdays in the second Superman Batman arc. Um, I I disagree with this because mainly I liked the villains that we were getting. Uh, odd that somebody wants to bring back conduit because I think you and I are the only ones that really like that character. (laughs) Um, But what I like about that character is that he served a very specific function and then he was taken off the table, um, which isn't something that happens normally with Superman villains. Uh, I also wonder if Jeff Loeb is reading this (laughs) because I distinctly, I distinctly, this is one of those stupid things. Why do I remember this? But when he was going to take over Superman, he got onto the DC message boards and was like, I am going to have Superman throw down with the heavy hitters of the DC universe. And I'm just like, okay, maybe, maybe DC read this article and took it to heart, but uh, I don't, I don't agree with it uh, with that. Cause when you like, I love Mongol and when done right, like in the recent Philip Kennedy Johnson uh, storyline he's great he's not a mainstay villain he's not an overarching villain i don't even think brainiac is i think i think those are characters you bring out for big stories but i don't know i i I, th- I think they're looking for something that isn't there and make and making assumptions that aren't there either fair this next one is a big one uh the supporting cast so the wizard sort of calls out the what they describe as this this or I'm paraphrasing, but this ballooning supporting cast uh, and that we're sort of losing the focus on the core of, of Clark and Lois and the Kens. I mean, we've talked about this in recent episodes. For me, look, I've been singing the praises of the supporting cast. I think that's that's the highlight of this triangle era and what builds out the world of Metropolis and makes you care and pulls you in. At the same time, in this stretch that I've been covering recently, when we get into the Scorn and Ashbury uh, period of this, that's where I feel like I, I hit a little bit of a breaking point. I feel like that's where we were stretching it too thin, but where, where do you land on this? Oh, I, I'm, I'm in the exact same place. Uh, like when it was Kat and Jimmy and Lois and they brought in Ron Troop and I liked him. It was just like, that was enough, but man, they latched onto Ashbury and scorn. Like, like they were going to get their own series. Uh, and that's my memory of it. Now, if I go and read it again, I mean, I may not feel that way. I don't think that I, I think I'm going to still feel the same way, but I remember around this time going, why are we spending so much time with, I mean, they're interesting characters, but I want to see Superman. I want to see Clark and Lois and all that. And I'm wondering if this was the creative teams kind of running out of steam 
with, I mean, there's only so many Superman stories you can tell. And I can see Ashbury and Scorn being kind of a crutch. It's just like, well, I don't really know what to do with Lois and Clark in this issue. So we'll shift the focus over to the Rush Limbaugh type character in Dirk Armstrong uh, and his daughter and her alien boyfriend that wears a Superman shirt and has tusks. <laughs> it's just like, how can I like something and still not want an, as much of it as we were getting? Yes. No, I, I agree. I, I think, I think, you know, credit to wizard on that one, this next one, man, do I disagree with this? Uh, but romantic tension, they, they want, uh, they sort of want to play up, uh, as they say, the way it should be, Clark Kent has options. Uh, so how there, how do we fix it is that Clark and Lois should be rivals, not married by separating or divorcing them. It would open a lot of romantic possibilities. Plus it would be fun to see Clark walk on eggshells again whenever he interacted with Lois. As somebody that absolutely hated that era where they were broken up before the wedding, like hated it. Um, hated it in 1996, hated it last year when I read it again. Uh, no, <laughs> no, this is, <laughs> I, I don't think the Clark Kent and, and Lois's rivals thing works as well as people say it does. And I think history has evolved to show that to be the case. Uh, when you look at like Lois and Clark, where she finds out after the fact, but around the time they get engaged to Smallville, where she finds out before he officially becomes Superman to like man of steel, where she's there on the ground floor, essentially. Uh, I, I, I think history has proven that while that was good for a certain era, no, these two just need to be together. <laughs> that, that, that's just it. I agree with all of that. And I think we've seen enough instances that really, that really show and prove that. I mean, the one thing I will say, if if you're not going to have them together, let let Clark explore the other options. That's why, look, and I was super skeptical of New 52, but when I finally started to read it and I delved into the, the Clark and Diana relationship, again, is it my preferred version? No, of course it's not. But reading it, it's like, well, okay, like at least this is a little something different and it's something new to explore. Uh, but yeah, no, overall, I, I, I disagree with this. I'm skipping over some, one of them is about the secret. They, the wizard felt that too many people knew his secret identity. And it's like, I don't know at this, at this point in time, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, 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 I guess it's all relative, but in the years to come, it's like far more people would know. So I, I, I mean, Lana kept it from her husband and she had a kid with him. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know it's, oh God. <laughs> and that's Clark's best friend from high school. <laughs> It's insane. All right. The last big one here is, and I think maybe this, this speaks to what you were saying about them running out of steam, but format. Uh, so wizard charges, there's, there was too much Superman, right? We had five ongoing titles, the four monthlies plus the quarterly man of tomorrow. They said that uh, DC should strip it down to two titles, Superman in action, just like Marvel was doing at the time with its Spider-Man relaunch with amazing and, and Peter Parker, Spider-Man, uh, yeah, I mean, where do you land on something like that, especially at this point in time where we were still having these, you know, 52 Superman comics a year? It's it's a tricky one because I have really come to the conclusion that the Triangle era should have ended when Berganza took over, like officially ended. Uh, I know Loeb hated it. Um, 
He didn't, they wanted to tell their own stories. And here's the thing. If you don't have everyone bought in on the concept, and if you don't have an editor that is going to have the hand that Mike Carlin had, it's not going to work as well. And I think you saw that it's nothing against Joey Cavalieri as an editor. Um, he, you know, he, he over, he had the unenviable task of following. Now, technically he followed KC Carlson. Um, cause he was the editor for like five minutes after Mike Carlin became like managing editor. Uh, but he had the unenviable task of following Death of Superman, uh, which was still fresh in everyone's minds. So, uh, but you still had the like enough of the core people where it could like come together. And I think nobody else can do that. <laughs> if you don't have Jurgens and Simonson and Kessel uh, and Ordway was scripting over Kessel, uh, if you don't have those, and um, if you don't have those people kind of all working together and, and gelling, then yeah, you know, you don't need the four titles because the, the great thing about the four titles is that it was essentially a weekly Superman comic. Um, it's interesting again, that they seem to be looking into the future because <laughs> eventually this is exactly what after infinite crisis, this is exactly what DC did. They had action and they had Superman. Yeah, exactly. No, it's true. I mean, look, I two of our earliest episodes on this podcast were the the Loeb Kelly era because that I have a very special place uh, for that time, and I I still do, and I enjoyed rereading them. But yeah, it's definitely, and especially now having read and reread the Triangle era leading up to it, yeah, it's a different flavor. It's not the same thing. It's not that interconnected weekly adventure, right? And I agree with you. They should have just, I mean, it took them until after our world's at war, but they really should have ditched them right off the bat and just, you know, had, had whatever they did a crossover story, you know, then you could use them then maybe use them spare. And we'd see that later on too, right? Like in the you know, mm -hmm. new Krypton saga, like they would use them occasionally, but, um, yeah, it definitely was, was, was a different thing. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe wizard had a crystal ball and, or people who then were in a position to do something about it. were reading that article and being like, Oh yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, because when you look at what happens like right after this, and are you going to continue next year and continue into the the lobe and the, the the end of the triangle era, or are you tapping out? Maybe this is more for off mic, but I, you know my my feeling was we already covered the the lobe Kelly era, but we did it in two episodes, right? So that's a tremendous amount of material to cover, and I I love doing these triangle era events. So as much as officially I was looking at Electric to One Million as the finale of this triangle era trilogy we've been doing. I am now kind of thinking, well, maybe we go back and maybe it'd be interesting to take another look at the Loeb Kelly era after all of this and take our time with it more, right? We wouldn't do just two episodes. We'd make a little bit more of a meal out of it. So there, there might be something like that. There are people that have asked Jeff and I why we're going all the way to 2006. Um, because for a lot of people, it ended in 1999. Um and my answer to that is, is I named the show from crisis to crisis. So I'm kind of locked into, a, <laughs> I'm locked into a time frame. <laughs> yeah, no, but that, I mean, that's, that totally makes sense, but yeah, that's uh that'll, I know that'll, that'll keep you busy, but um, listen, this, this was really a lot of fun. I, I so appreciate you mm -hmm. taking the time and coming on. And, and, and like I said, just for, for all of your support generally, uh, where should people go to, to follow you and your podcast? Uh, fortress of Bailey 2.com. 
um, which I I call it the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network, only because I just wanted a central location for everything. I used to have like a different blog for every show, and that was just a nightmare to keep up with. Um, so everything's there. You can the shows that are going on right now um, are from Crisis to Crisis is back for the time being. Um, it all comes back to Superman comes out very irregularly. I'm, I'm trying to get a bunch in the can so that I can, uh, do that. And that's more kind of like this show where I just take a different thing that I don't normally talk about on the other show, uh, to examine, even though I've broken that rule a bunch of times. Uh, there's also the Overlook dark Knight, where me and my friend Andy look at Batman stories that no one really talks about. Um, and every once in a while we actually stick to that remit as well. Uh, the thing about podcasting is you make rules immediately to break them. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's just my, but, and every Monday night at 1030 Eastern, Steve Eunice and I have the Superman homepage, uh, do an hour long show called Superman homepage live, where we talk about the latest in Superman news. So uh, I'm pretty easy to find. You can find that at supermanhomepage.com. Very cool. Well, I hope everyone will, will check that out. I assume many already have. Again, you've been at this for a while, uh, and I'm sure people are familiar. But if not, uh, make sure you you check that out. So, Michael, really, thank you again. It was great to to meet you and to have this conversation. It was really a blast. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. I'm uh, I, I was really looking forward to this because, uh, like I said, I really like the show and getting to come out and play. Um, one of the great things I have found about Superman podcasters is that normally we really like talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And teaming up. And I think that's just reflective of the character in general. So well said. And speaking of future or, or team ups generally, you'll also be a guest uh, very soon on my George Reeves rewatch podcast, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman. So that'll be coming up soon as well. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that because that is a insane episode. <laughs> yes, that'll, that'll be a lot of fun. So I hope people will stay tuned for that. So thank you, Michael. Thank you audience. As always, I really appreciate it. Make sure you come back next week as we continue along with electric to 1 million. As always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.